I love to win. Don't you? I love to win. I love the feeling of having it all together, of causing all the right pieces to fall into place, and of sharing success with others. It took me a lot of years to come to terms with the fact that I have a competitive streak in me a mile wide, tempered only by the maturity of understanding how to be a gracious winner and, when necessary, a gracious loser. I began to take a deeper look at ideas of winning and losing 15 summers ago when I spent a couple weeks in El Salvador. The images from that beloved country will always stick with me. Corrugated tin shacks that refused to keep the rain out. Psalm 91 printed on the back of a bus. Barefoot children working with us to fill in a muddy road. Salvadoran laborers making $4 for a day's work. A church filled with paintings honoring Jesuit priests who were massacred by the government's American-trained death squads. It's the only country on earth named after Jesus himself, El Salvador, the Savior. El Salvador is full of people who are struggling painfully just to live to the next day. One of our guides on the trip, a missionary and advocate for the poor named Noah Bullock, told us, Every day when I wake up, I make a list of things to do today, knowing full well that I will fail to do almost everything on the list. But that's okay, because those failures will teach me what I must put on tomorrow's list. As I woke in San Salvador the next morning, this phrase was stuck in my head. Jesus is for losers. Jesus is for losers. Well, I found this phrase to be both provocative and unnerving, and right away I discovered that I wasn't the first to think of it. Someone named Steve Taylor had recorded a song with that title and had made a lot of people angry. Listen to these lyrics. Just as I am, I am needy and dry. Jesus is for losers. The self-made need not apply. In the Bible, the chosen people alternate between understanding that they are God's beloved and trying very hard to become a self-made nation. When God gives them a victory, they don't appreciate it for long. Sure, Moses parts the Red Sea and the Egyptian oppressor's chariots are swept away by the waters. But what happens next? Forty years wandering in the desert, grumbling all the way that they would rather go back to Egypt and be slaves. Of course, they do eventually wind up in the promised land. And after a few centuries, they establish themselves a scrappy little kingdom. Under David and then Solomon, they grow to become a force in regional geopolitics. They build a grand temple to God. But within a generation of that, Israel splits into two countries. Then it begins to be taken to pieces by foreign nations until there's nothing left. A big army couldn't save them. And a big temple couldn't protect them. Well... Maybe God is not interested in preserving specific nations. 
whether that's Egypt, Israel, Judah, or America. Maybe God is far more interested in whether we're learning to love and forgive one another. Centuries later, people expected Jesus to come storming into Jerusalem on horseback and reclaim the city and the nation from the Roman oppressors. Instead, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and prophetically smashed up his own temple's marketplace. When a charismatic leader doesn't live up to the people's expectations, crucifixion is a common result. So Jesus died. By all eyewitness accounts, Jesus failed completely. Jesus was a loser. I want to suggest today that if we claim to follow Jesus, we have to allow that losing may be seriously underrated. I mean, as it is, it's 100% unavoidable. And the sooner we admit that, the better. A friend of mine once found herself in a verbally abusive relationship. She and her boyfriend fought constantly, but she kept forgiving him. Then one day she asked him, when we have a fight, what is your ultimate goal? Without a second thought, he shot back, to win. At that moment, she knew their relationship was over. She got out as fast as she could. She lost. And that was what saved her. See, all her little forgivenesses for individual slights, it turned out, weren't forgiveness at all. They were repeated attempts to win him over to her side. Once it became clear that this was futile, she gave up on winning. She lost once more, and she never had to battle with him again. That allowed her to begin the long-term work of forgiving him for real. See, when winning becomes more important than the relationship and the forgiveness in the relationship, there's just no point in continuing. Today, Jesus tells us to keep forgiving time and time again, 77 times if necessary, and that means forever. But this doesn't mean allowing people to continue to abuse us. It means that since we are all eternal beings, we are never actually rid of anyone. So what will we do about that? Well, for starters, we need to link Jesus' statement about 77 times to the outsized drama of the parable that follows it. A king wants to settle his accounts. One of his servants owes him a lot of money. Now, to help us keep the character straight, let's name the servant Joe. How much money does Joe owe the king exactly? Yeah, recalculating the numbers given here into today's money, I figure that he owes his master, oh, $10 million. Wow. Let's leave aside the mysterious question of how Joe came to wind up this badly in debt. The point is that the king wants his money now, so he has Joe arrested. Joe pleads, I can't pay you now, but I promise I will pay you back someday. Wait, does Joe still think he can win here? He's never going to see that kind of wealth. Well, out of pity for him, the king suddenly cancels Joe's entire debt and lets him go free. 
I imagine Joe is somewhat rattled by this experience. He's just been given an incredible gift, but he doesn't know how to receive it. Maybe he feels humiliated. He's a good, honest man, and he'd never stoop to taking charity. What would his neighbors think? Or maybe Joe doubts that his debt really is forgiven. So he figures he'd better start scraping together as much money as he can before the king asks him for payment again. The first thing Joe does is to find some poor schlub, we'll call him Harry, who owes Joe a hundred bucks. Joe demands immediate payment, but Harry can't pay. So Joe has Harry arrested. Now let's be clear. Joe hasn't done anything illegal. Harry is suffering the proper consequences for not paying his debt, just as the king had initially instructed to happen to Joe. But when the king finds out about Harry's fate, he angrily calls Joe on the carpet to explain himself. What is Joe's crime? Simply this, his failure to trust that the king has indeed forgiven the debt. See, Joe believes that when you're dealing with a powerful, probably capricious king, forgiveness can only ever be an illusion. As a result, he refuses to allow the king's forgiveness to change how he relates to everyone else. So the king says, if you insist on continuing to try to win, then we'll, we'll have it your way. We'll play by your rules. He reinstates the $10 million debt. It appears that Joe prefers the torture of playing by the rules to the torture of accepting forgiveness. What a loser. But I know his kind. I've been his kind. The world is full of Christians who just can't believe that God forgives sins. Despite 2,000 years of the good news that Jesus has solved our spiritual debt crisis, somehow we keep trying to earn God's favor. That's how we wind up with abusive systems like fundamentalism, but it also drives all our own petty little insecurities. Well, you know what? If God is real, and if God is like the way we talk about God in this place, then we are forgiven and safe in God's hands. Why are we so anxious? Will we admit before God that we can't win? That no matter how hard we work, we'll never truly be able to say, this is the life I always dreamed of? God doesn't want us to have a comfortable life. God wants us to have abundant life. And that has nothing to do with money or power or security or victory or competence or even our very lives. We can't keep any of these things and we won't. In his book, The Parables of Grace, Robert Farrar Capon wrote that God only works with the last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead. He has no use for winners. Can you confess that you are all of these things? Last, least, lost, little, and dead? Or at least that you have been before and will be again someday, and that you cannot avoid this? In this community, it's okay to be a total loser. 
It's not only okay, dare I say this, it's actually a requirement. Winning feels great when it happens, but all the self-made victories in the world will bring you no closer to the one who saves you. So come be a loser with us. Know what it is to fail, to experience dashed expectations, to suffer and grieve, to never quite be on top of things. Surrender to God your urge to ultimately win. Bring your anxiety over your job or your family. Bring that neurosis from childhood that you still haven't gotten over. Bring them and put them on the altar. Bring the fight you had on the playground with your best friend. Bring that grudge you've been holding on to for years. You know the one. Put it on the altar. Bring your salary and your overworked schedule and your possessions and your homework and your commute and your lost love and your aching bones and your new medication and hand them over to God who actually owns them all anyway. Quit trying so hard to win. Today, in this place, you can sacrifice that charade on this altar. Slaughter it and burn it. And God will transform it into something you don't recognize yet. Something that's far better than you could ever have imagined. The winners, the winners hold to the creed, eat or be eaten. To them, Jesus replies, okay then, I choose to be eaten, then I can nourish you. Jesus is for losers. And that is the best news. Jesus has saved all of us losers. And the minute we admit that to God and to ourselves, we can relax and humbly enjoy the abundant gift of life that God has given us in which we learn the meaning of love and the meaning of forgiveness and the meaning of not needing to win. Amen.